Hello everyone, it's February 5th, 2019. This week, NASA is still holding out for contact with Opportunity, but it's not looking good. And yes, we're gonna talk about that Raptor engine. That does look good in all its full flow staged combustion glory. So let's light it up and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 196 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Hey, Dennis. Welcome back. Hey, glad to be here. <laughs> that was really, really frustrating last week. <laughs> yeah. Last week, listeners might have noticed that for some of the show, you weren't here because mm-hmm. uh, you had a, I guess it was a modem problem, right? You, uh, it was my you modem. You had a complete yep. crap out. Yeah, it, was, it just totally was kaput. I had to buy a new one. So happily, though, I got Prime, so I was able to get it within 48 hours, but... That was still a little frustrating. So you don't have one that's provided by the cable company? Isn't that what most people do? I don't know if it yeah, is. Yeah, totally. yeah. So I made the decision about three years ago to just get my own because I wanted to get more higher end ones because both uh, my partner and I have PlayStation 4s. And so since we like <laughs> the game together, we need a, <laughs> we Yeah, so we pay for the more bandwidth and then we, you know, I bought the higher end uh modem and uh, router. But it was, it was neat though because I live right on the main drag of town and so i got to you know actually kind of it was easy enough to just go to a coffee shop or even a bar at one point and just use their wi-fi so we we survived it's kind of surprising though that you bought your own high-end modem and then it only lasted a couple years i wonder if there's a warranty yeah that's the thing it it, i guess i didn't have the warranty uh you know being the option to pay for whatever and i opted not to so the full disclosure is it's kind of my fault because in the move I had basically lost the power supply to it. And the guy at the, when I got, we got the cable in the new place, he warned me, he's like, nah, routers are very picky. They need their own proper one. And I bought one and it lasted, uh, you know, about six months until it kind of. Yeah. So basically you fried it. That's what it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) That is what I did. I, yeah. (laughs) Ah, sucks. Yeah. Well, let that be a lesson. I I figured you could just buy something that has the same voltage, right? Like it should say on the on you know the little thing, but it has to be a very specific, yeah, like, tailor made to it. Yeah, and that and that's what I did, right? I bought one with all the right specs, the right voltage, right amperage, and it turned. I mean, it did last this long, but the company's Netgear, they won't sell you just the power supply mm-hmm. for that modem. So I would have that's to weird. have bought a new modem anyway. So I guess I just delayed it by. <laughs> you know, however many months it was by by getting yeah. a, the cheap knockoff. So it was only 10 bucks for the power supply, so not bad for that period of time. Glad to be back <laughs> on my stable work Wi-Fi. Cool. Yeah, let's just dive into this week in spaceflight history. How many winners do we have? I guess just well, two. Huh? Yeah, we have two, but neither of them guessed ex- or explained exactly why I chose the clue, but I'm glad to have two anyway because <laughs> two's better than none. Uh, our winners for this week are Flip Flap Jones, good name, and La Loving, familiar name. Uh, the clue from last week was like a giant squid cyclops, and I'll tell you exactly what I'm thinking here. This week in spaceflight history is the 7th of February, 2001. It was the launch of Destiny on Space Shuttle Atlantis STS-95. So I'm going to keep this one kind of short. I, I think the installation of Destiny is pretty straightforward, but still, you know, there are enough steps to make it worth talking about. So, you know, here's the recipe on how to install an ISS module. First, uh, PMA-2 was already on the forward node of or the forward port of unity 
And that's where we want to install Destiny. So first thing they do is they don't use Canada Arm 2. They use Canada Arm the Elder, uh, the one on the space shuttle, to actually pull PMA2 off of Unity. And then, you know, you need a robotic arm to install another uh, another piece of the puzzle there. So what do you do? Well, let's put PMA2 down. Well, where do we put it down? In this case, they chose to move it to the Z1 truss forward docking node. Yes, the Z1 truss has a docking port on the front of it. No, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> it just <laughs> it's a nice place to hold equipment. You can't really do anything. But if you, if you look at the Z1 node, which is the the one in the very center of the truss, you'll see on the front there's like a circle. Yeah, that's a docking port. So, they stow PMA2 on the truss. Then they pull Destiny out of the shuttle, installed on the forward uh, port of Unity, and that's the first day. Then a couple of days later, they come back uh, and they move PMA2 to Destiny's forward port. Now, remember that Destiny is eventually going to get another node uh, added onto it, and then there's going to be two more nodes added onto those in like a T configuration, right? The front of the space station looks like a T. Uh, this is not the last time they get to drive these docking bolts. They're going to have to undo everything uh, later. But that gets Destiny to where it's supposed to be. Destiny is fun. It's a a, a long module. You know, there are a couple of different. They all have the same diameter, but on the on the US OS, they all have the same diameter. But there are a couple of different lengths depending on what the um, what the module is intended to do. Destiny is the US lab, like it's where we do all of our science. So it's a longish node. On the inside, it has ISPRs, the International Standard Payload Racks. Um, these would eventually also be featured on the European and Japanese modules. Uh, but for right now, this was the first module to actually have ISPRs. And, you know, there are some pretty cool things that end up getting installed in Destiny. But when it first arrived, it had had seven, oh, I'm sorry, five racks pre-filled with life support equipment. Now, one of the cool things that ended up getting put into one of those racks is an experiment called Wharf, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a sec. But on the nadir side of Destiny is the nadir window. It is the largest optical quality window that's ever been flown in space. Uh, it is 20 inches in diameter. It's huge. And it's, like I said, it's optic quality so you can stick a camera in there and take really really nice photos so here's where the clue comes in i was like "Ooh, a giant eye i know the largest eye in nature is the ah. giant squid <laughs> but the giant squid has a 10 inch eye and the nadir window is a 20 inch window so i was thinking okay well you know, when you have a Cyclops, their eye gets twice as large, right? They got one double-sized eye. So I thought people were going to, like, totally get the units there. <laughs> Guess who was asking too much? Okay. Um, yeah, I've never heard that officially. I didn't know that that's how the rules of Cyclopses worked. Cyclopses? Is that the word? Cyclopsidae? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know that, you know, the single eye had to be twice as big as the two well, small I don't, ones. I don't know if it's actually twice as large, but I mean, it, it looks bigger. Like whenever yeah. anybody draws a Cyclops, it's always no, kind of true. true. <laughs> anyway, so uh, later on, Worf was installed. Worf is the Window Observational Research Facility. It is, it's basically a tripod is the way you can think about it. It's a place to mount uh, various types of cameras in Destiny's giant window. What's really, really cool about Worf is that it's just installed in an ISPR, 
right? You have this window. You don't need to like clear out space and add some extra bolts. No, they just positioned it right underneath an ISPR. And so you can just slide the wharf experiment into the rack and it just sits right in front of the window and it's really nice. Yes, wharf uh, is a reference to the Star Trek character. In fact, uh, the patch for wharf features wharf's name and Klingon. I was wondering what that was. Ah. Yeah. So that is Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and what's really cool is they actually, um, bef- when they designed this patch, they actually went and talked to the Star Trek folks. I-, I think this was after Roddenberry was off Star Trek, right? Well, he died in like 91. I think it was like season three or four or maybe yeah. five. Yeah, so this is 2001. So it's definitely after his death. Oh, yeah. So they I, they talked to, I forget who it was, one of the directors, one of the creative directors. And mm-hmm. uh, they said, yep, nope, that doesn't break canon. You're good. Uh, <laughs> and and so they have uh, CBS's blessing or who, whoever it is. And the patch is really gorgeous. The vector version is a little more clear than the stitched version. But the stitched version features Worf's name at the top, an astronaut holding a telescope that's connected to a laptop. And then uh, there's the Earth in the background, and it's got a rainbow on it on the, the limb of the Earth uh, that follows the limb. And then on the right-hand side is this gray blob that doesn't really make sense in the stitched version but it's actually destiny with a window at the bottom and like a ray of looking oh. you know like a ray coming out of the window it's really nice so in the show notes i'll put the stitched version i mean I, we don't normally talk too much about patches but what's really cool is on the collect space forums somebody even found one of the original versions you know, like the one of the art revision sheets that shows like what the patch looked like originally and how it got tweaked. I mean, oh. it's it's not a whole lot, but you know, it's kind of cool to have a hand drawn list of or a handwritten list of notes for uh, for a patch. Anyway, there you go. That's this week in space flight history. Uh, Destiny is awesome. Nice. Although I do want to just throw out there that when you were mentioning the things on there. You didn't mention the eyeball, the eyeball with wings. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> the patch also has an eyeball with wings. Uh, that that seems obvious. I don't know why I would need to actually mm-hmm. call. It. <laughs> I can see how because I think that one of the two correct answers, um, Flip Flop Jones, said that the patch looks like a squid's beak, which actually it doesn't, and that the window of the Destiny capsule being the Cyclops's eye, which oh. which that part. Is kind of yeah. That's like that's actually correct, right? But just not the part about the squid's head. How does I don't it, know why that look like a. Yeah, it's just a round patch. I don't oh. get that. Yeah, I, f- I forgot that he mentioned the patch. That's that's pretty cool. But you know, partial credit. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I mean, full credit because nobody got full. You know, whatever. Yeah, it, it was yeah. it was not a great clue. So okay, uh, it's not a not a perfect clue. Obviously, like people got it, but it's not perfect. Okay, next week in two thousand, the clue is nearly a disaster. In two thousand, nearly a disaster. Okay, don't know what that is, but I feel like that's going to be an interesting one because there's so many near disasters in right. space it seems all right well if you think you know what that's about just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck NASA is making a renewed effort to contact the Mars rover Opportunity. So I'm getting the timeline a little bit messed up, I guess, because I thought they called it like a couple weeks ago and we had failed to mention it. But mm. is this still ongoing? Like, is NASA trying to still contact Oppie? Yes. I mean, I guess so. But <laughs> they yeah. are. But I like the renewed effort, I think, 
makes it sound brighter than it really is. It's really just a last ditch, low probability events, because like you say, I think they kind of realized the writing was on the wall with regards to just, you know, the more likely reasons why they've lost communication. And so now, yeah, they're kind of doing this last ditch effort, which is a bummer. Well, and and by last ditch, we mean like this probably isn't going to work, but let's try it anyway. Like this is the equivalent of taking the batteries out of the TV remote and swapping them around, hoping it's going to make the TV (laughs) remote work and meaning that you don't have to get up off the couch to get new batteries. I don't know about swapping them. I tend to just roll the batteries. Exactly. Do you guys know why that actually works? No idea. Um, I'm guessing. Does it create like a little bit of a static buildup or something? Like it kind of gets the current flowing? Hmm. No, no, it's it's not static electricity. It's actually that um, bubbles form on the elements inside of a battery. And if you can knock those bubbles off, you get a little extra charge out ah. of them. Oh, okay. Because my other guess is that maybe there was like a little bit of, uh, not like corrosion, but there was something like maybe just like blocking the current. And so if you rolled them, you yep. kind of like, you know, scrape yeah. out the contacts a little bit. So there was a 45-day campaign to restore contact with Oppie, and that was extended through January, but now it's February, right? So is this still ongoing? I, I think they are still doing that. Yeah, the, the sweep and beep one where they're actively trying to ping the rover to try to get it to respond. But um, now they're they're looking into sort of these low-probability ones, too. Because the, the, the real issue and the hope was that Mars just you know had passed through perihelion, uh, like, I don't know, a couple months ago, uh, maybe a month or so. And that's when, you know, you get most of the, the windy season. That's when it's the windiest. And as a result, they were hoping, right, the classic kind of clean off the solar panels, because that's ultimately what this all came from, was just there was a dust storm, a global one that caked the solar panels. And so they basically are, you know, counting on the winds to clean things up. But that uh, sounds like that hasn't happened. And so these uh, low probability ones, right, so there's kind of three things that there could be. One is that the primary X-band receiver is just totally not working. So to remedy that, they can switch to the backup. The second one that they're going to send commands and test is whether the backup is also inoperable, in which case there's a UHF receiver they can try switching to and have it try to communicate to us via that. Or the third is that the internal clock is offset, since that's an important uh, part of making these communications work in the first place. And so to remedy that, they're going to send a command to reset the clock. But uh, the quote I've got here is that a series of unlikely events would need to have transpired for any one of these faults to occur, mm. coming from JPL. So it sounds like, like you're saying, this is <laughs> this is kind of the lazy sort of, not well, it's not the lazy, it's not lazy in the sense when we rotate the batteries around in our remote, but it's, I don't know, it's like just... It's due diligence. A lot of people, you know, there's a lot of people have an emotional contact with this rover. And plus getting it back Mm -hmm. up would just be great. And so you just really want to exhaust all the options. And so we've kind of now moved to the least likely ones, the real last ditch efforts. Wow. Yeah. I I mean, I guess they just want to be able to say that they tried like every last option. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, people on Twitter, I've been seeing some planetary scientists basically tweeting their kind of you know, their last goodbyes. Yep. And uh, I saw a tweet uh, this week where they were talking about the team having Friday off and still coming in on their off day to work on on getting Oppie up and running. 
So, yeah, I mean, it always sucks to lose uh, a mission like this. Um, but at least this wasn't totally unexpected. You know, we we saw the storm coming and had time to sure, do sure, everything sure. we could. Yep. And at least since, you know, it is a machine and it can be technically brought back to life, like maybe one day someone will go and pick it up and <laughs> bring it back right? to their little habitation module. <laughs> yeah, so, so I saw somebody on Reddit asking about that. Like, can we go to Mars and repair these rovers and get them back? to doing science and i was like i mean you could but if you've got people on mars you can do what these rovers are doing in such a short amount of time that it seems weird to like invest time so i think um did i just finished reading artemis last week i don't know if you guys have read it yet i started it but it was the audio book and like i think i was mentioning last week i need the actual book because i need to read it's (laughs) hard it's hard for me to listen i thought the audio book was really really good but yeah in that book you know one of the apollo sites is a historic well all the apollo sites are historic landmarks and so Mm -hmm. you're not allowed to go within you know 10 feet and you know it's just like i I can't wait until these rovers are museum pieces you know Mm -hmm. um and we get to go look at them with binoculars from 10 feet away (laughs) right aren't they aren't they technically designated as kind of monuments after they're officially the mission's officially over i don't know anything about that huh yeah i mean i know that the moon landing sites are pretty much agreed to be monuments but i didn't know that that happened on mars as well so like those sites where they just die can be like uh, martian world heritage sites and you just leave it there yeah i had seen an interactive map on wikipedia of mars that was kind of showing where all these sort of monuments are and i think i'm pretty sure they uh ah here's the the viking one lander is now named the thomas much memorial station in january Mm. 1982 who is the uh leader of the viking imaging team so someday somebody will come to you know oppie's point (laughs) eventually maybe not in a hundred i don't know in a hundred years how long do you think we would have that many kind of people you know that many people on mars you know that's distant future someone to go pick it up and just yeah dust it off and maybe stick it in the museum Cool. All right. So let's translate to a new topic. I haven't used that term in a long time. I know it sucks, but <laughs> I try to make that work with the whole orbital mechanics theme. Get it? Translate? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, no, I like, I, I like translate over. I'm digging it. Yeah, translate over to uh, SpaceX as we are wont to do. So Raptor, <laughs> we have some cool pics of a Raptor engine. Yeah. And where are we going to begin here? Because I have a couple of questions, but I guess maybe you have some point that you well, want let to me get. let me give you some context. Um, so Scott Manley did a video uh, this week about uh, Raptor. And I really like the way that he started out with some context. So uh, Merlin is SpaceX's current workhorse. And Merlin has gone through huge updates. So Merlin 1A had 73,000 pounds of thrust. The current uh, latest, Merlin 1D++, is 203,000 pounds of thrust. So that's almost three times uh, the thrust of, of Merlin 1A. Have you guys seen the Merlin 1D+, and Merlin 1D++ designations? I don't think that SpaceX refers to them that way. I think that that's the way that we're referring to them because we don't know how SpaceX refers to them. Is that the case? Do you guys know if that's... Why wouldn't they call it Merlin 1E and 1F? It seems weird they'd stop at D. Yeah, 
I don't know. Um, I thought that was their own terminology because oh, okay. I don't know why. I'm not sure why we as the general public would make yeah. up something like 1D++. Yeah, you're right. I'm thinking in terms of like version control. like, yeah. And you see that in the table yeah. too where it's version 1D is 1.1. 1D plus yeah. is 1.2, 1D plus plus 1.2, wait, also 1.2, yeah. So uh, with with that in mind, Elon released some numbers about Raptor, and it's 200 metric tons of thrust. So yes, it's amazing to watch Merlin increase in thrust by, you know, three times. But this is something completely different, right? This is a huge, huge, huge engine. Mm. I mean, it's one of the first methane. I don't know if it's the first, but it will probably be the first to make it to space, the first methalox engine. Mm. So Mm -hmm. it's a big game changer there. But uh, just to remind listeners, this is a full flow stage combustion engine. It's also a first. That's that's another first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've never flown a full flow staged combustion engine. Well, sure we have, haven't we? Yeah, there's. Nope. there's... They've been tested. Yeah, we've tested the yeah, Soviets. There were, there were and... two Russian. Yeah, they were like RD series engines that were tested but never flown. Okay, so we have flown like obviously many stage combustion engines, but what is the difference between full flow? Like, does that ah like, okay? No, this mm. is a good question. I I may be about to completely eat my words, but luckily Sam's in the chat and he'll correct me if I'm wrong. There we go. So a um, a gas generator is where you have um, a smaller combustion chamber that drives the turbo pumps, and then you throw that exhaust overboard. Yeah. A staged combustion engine is where you are. Is it is it called a stage when you recapture that uh, exhaust, exhaust and yeah. just dump it into your combustion chamber? Well, full flow staged. Oh yeah, there we go. Um, Russians call staged combustion closed cycle gas generator, which I think is a better way to describe it. Um, so what we've flown, like um, the RD twenty five space shuttle main engine, what it did was it had two. Uh, turbo pumps that what one was burning uh, f- uh fuel rich yeah yeah one was burning fuel rich and that's driving the fuel pump one was burning oxygen rich and that was driving the oxygen pump and then that the incompletely combusted results of that were getting dumped into the combustion chamber along with extra unburned like virgin co- propellants that get dumped mm-hmm. in there as well full flow staged i could be wrong Oh, uh, RS-25. Sorry, not the RD-25. RS-25 Space Shuttle Main Engine. Um, So Raptor, it doesn't add any extra uh, virgin fuel into the combustion chamber. What goes into the combustion chamber is all gas. There's no liquid going into the combustion chamber, which is cool and terrifying at the same time. (laughs) So what goes into the combustion chamber is 100% the exhaust from the turbo pumps, in other words. Okay, that's. <laughs> I don't know how I missed that this whole time. Isn't that crazy? So it, it's amazing because we've we've even done a data relay segment talking about injector plates and like how difficult it is to mm-hmm. mix two liquids thoroughly enough that they can combust completely in a very very short amount of time. So what this is doing is it's you know figuring out a way to add enough heat to these liquids to get them to turn into gases and then gases mix really really easily so mm-hmm. all of a sudden your injector plate is super super simple you don't have to worry about you know all these complex pintle injectors and uh what's it called when the spray interferes with itself you don't have to worry about that yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't have to worry about aiming literally droplets at each other and hoping they smash together it doesn't matter 
you just you're dumping gas in that's perfectly mixed um but of course you know the terrifying part of that is you've got all this hot gas <laughs> everywhere so <laughs> and, and it's moving very quickly and you know you don't have to deal with cavitation but they probably have to deal with you know mock speed boundaries as you know this gas is moving close to the speed of sound at least you know at the the pressures that they're using so it, it's crazy but it, it's going to be an awesome rocket engine i assume that because you have the two turbo pumps dumping in their respective mixtures that are at least i assume very fuel rich and very oxidizer rich on you know both sides that maybe it is in a gaseous state but well i guess what i'm saying is that it kind of surprises me that having it in a gaseous form it doesn't make it more difficult to get the amount of propellant pumped in that you need yeah, because i think it does it's not very dense it's gas and so yeah. how do you get the kind of thrust that you want that's rather surprising i mean i can see it being maybe more efficient in terms of specific impulse mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. not necessarily in terms of thrust but I mean, who knows? Yeah, you, you got to make I think it comes down to just like giant pipes, right? Yeah. <laughs> and luckily, this is a giant engine. And so you can get really huge diameters. But I'm sure there are a lot of clever stuff that, you know, we don't know about and that mm -hmm. uh, rocket scientists don't know about yet, because I bet you there's a lot of proprietary solutions yeah. that they've come up with. I mean, even just in the alloying issues, like, how do you make an alloy that can stand up to an oxidizing atmosphere? You know, not just liquid oxygen, but gaseous oxygen, and then do it in a stand up well enough that, you know, you can reuse the engine without major overhauls. Like it's, it's insane. Um, so Sam in the chat says, as far as I understand, the pressure inside the pre-burner is enough to compensate for, you know, the, the low density. It's a lot higher pressure than a conventional gas generator. Yeah. Like, obviously it's gotta be high pressure. It's gotta be high speed. I wonder if they get close to like super critical phase. Like if they squish this stuff down in such a high temperature that it happens to slip into that fuzzy region of the phase chart. I I mean, I know that I know that water and CO2 can do that, but you mean kind of like a triple point? Well, if you think about the triple point, you've got like a solid line going left and then a solid line going like up and right. And then there's a third. There's got to be a third line, but that third line isn't solid. It's really fuzzy. And so that's where you can get like super critical CO2. That's like not a liquid, but not a gas, you know, kind of in the middle. So I, I wonder if they're getting into some weird phase, weird parts of the phase diagram. I don't know. It's, it's really fascinating. <laughs> well, I do recall. And in fact, this is something that I ended up cutting from the show in editing because we got it wrong. But I did understand afterwards that the pressure inside those pre-burners is extremely high. We had mistaken that for the actual chamber pressure of the nozzle, mm. which I was like, well, that ah. can't be right because it was something like ridiculously high. And I was like, yeah, that's not that's not right. So I <laughs> double checked and it turns out we got it wrong. But yeah, the actual pre-burner, that pressure before it gets to the injector plate or whatever, um, that is very, very high. And so I suppose that that's exactly how they're doing it. Um, and then one other thing to mention is we weren't sure if they had actual Raptor engines or fake Raptor engines in the starship um, as they've been disassembling the starship it it seems pretty clear that they're placeholders also what's interesting is that um, did we talk about the altitude compensation nozzles on the starship i don't know if we talked about it before but yeah that was something that i did want to bring up because um it seems like people still aren't sure 
like as to whether that is the case or not. Now, I'm guessing not. But... Yeah, so with the Raptor engines that we've seen photos of, it's not the case. And and the question is, were those mock-ups just really bad mock-ups that they threw together real quick? Or are they representing a future state of the engine where it will have uh, these special nozzles? And I think that's not unreasonable because Elon Musk... Um, said that initially they're going to make one thrust engine common across ship and booster, um, which will help them complete their uh, I Love the Moon project, what it's called, Moon Love. Dear Moon. Which which will help them complete their <laughs> Dear Moon project. Thank you, Dennis, uh, as quickly as possible. Um, and then later they're going to split into vacuum optimized and sea level thrust optimized. And when that happens, I'm betting those sea level thrust optimized will have the compensation nozzles because it does make sense for, in some cases, it makes sense to have those. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was something that happened down the line. But to begin with, obviously, that's not the case. At least according to the Scott Manley video that we linked to, as we always do, um, the quote-unquote mock-ups, at least I think that this is what you're referring to, those mock-ups were, it was just that there was a section of the nozzle that was perhaps just like, you know, some sheet that was just like haphazardly wrapped around it. And it kind of looked that way, but mm -hmm. it's, it's just that it didn't fit very well. And so yeah. it, it kind of looked like that that's what you were saying was but compensation. I, I yeah. think it's... My guess is that it's that they were modeling a future version of the engine. Hmm, okay, maybe, yeah. Hmm. So if, if they are going to have two separate, I mean, like in the future, if they're going to have two separate nozzles, one that's vacuum optimized in, one for sea level, you're saying that the one for sea level, they're still going to do that? They're going to have these compensation nozzles because, I mean, that would be more efficient. But, I mean, you just think that that's something that would be done just to gain that little bit of efficiency? Yep. Because that would just be for that first, what, two minutes or so of the flight yeah i mean it depends on how high the booster gets you know we we, we don't know if it's going to get high enough that that is worth doing but i think it i yeah. think it's going to be hmm. Mo mostly because that's the world i want to live in and you can't <laughs> convince me to swap back to reality Okay, moving on to short and sweet, just two this week. Uh, what's the first one, Dennis? So Blue Origin gets another customer. Canadian satellite operator Telesat has selected Blue Origin's New Glenn rocket for a multi-launch delivery of its global LEO broadband constellation. One of the reasons for selecting Blue Origin was the New Glenn 7-meter diameter payload fairing and its ability to carry 45 metric tons to LEO. This will allow for fewer launches, which means a lower cost per satellite to orbit. It has not been specified how many launches Telesat purchased with Blue Origin, but this new agreement means Blue Origin now has a minimum of 10 launches for five different customers lined up as soon as New Glenn is operational. Yep. Sweet. That's a lot for a yeah, rocket right? that's never even <laughs> been seen. Okay. Next up, ABL Space Systems gets more competitive. Small launch vehicle startup ABL Space Systems has announced it will be dropping its RS-1 rocket launch price from $17 million down to $12 million and increasing its payload capacity from 900 to 1,200 kilograms, making it more competitive with other launch providers like Firefly and Relativity. Uh, this improvement is being achieved by bringing the engine design and construction in-house. The original plan was to purchase engines from Ursa Major, but ABL is now designing its own E-1 and E-2 engines for its RS-1 launch vehicle. Okay, 
questions, comments, and correction burns. This week we got a couple of things. Um, first up, a uh, correction about what we discussed last week about that Starship nose cone getting blown over. Uh, the correction comes from Ben Howard via Twitter. I don't know exactly what we said. It was probably me because I actually didn't even know this. Um, but I was under the impression that the nose cone was on top of the first stage when it blew over. But as it turns out, it was just sitting on the ground, and that's where it got blown over. Uh, so that's so that's yeah. something that I did not even know. Um, next up, I've got a pretty cool announcement. So we're not exactly doing a sponsored show here, but let, let me kind of tell the story. So there was this artist who was posting art on the SpaceX subreddit for t-shirts and it looked really good. And they were asking, you know, if I made this a t-shirt, would you buy it? And I was just like, yeah, like wait, that's awesome. And so uh, later on he came back and, and said, okay, I've got a shop up and running and here's, you know, a bunch of designs that I have. And I was like, this is so cool. So I shot him an email and I said, Hey, are you taking commissions? Would you design us a t-shirt? And he said, uh, his name was Michael. Uh, he said, uh, Nope, I'm not taking commissions, but if we can work out uh, a little deal, I would be happy to throw in a t-shirt design as, as part of that deal. So we went back and forth. And so here's what we're doing. And this is such a great deal. Like it, this is, this is really cool. So if you go to sfsf.shop slash support Tom, that's support hyphen T O M. We have a gallery of our 10 favorite t-shirts that he's done. The t-shirts that we selected are all space themed. He's done some other, you know, Tesla themed and things like that, but these are all space themed. Um, there's even some planetary geology in there. Uh, so that, that should uh, make some people happy, but these are 10 shirts that are our favorites. If you go and buy a t-shirt, we will get some money kicked back. We'll get a percentage of the sale. Not only that, but it will demonstrate that we have, not purchasing power, but that our listeners like nerdy stuff and are willing to go and <laughs> engage, you know, not just listen, but, but engage in, in our community. So, uh, that will, you know, kind of, uh, add a little bit of cachet. It'll give us a little bit of kickback. You'll also be supporting this fantastic artist. And I can't tell you how much I love this guy's t-shirts. So go check that out. Also at the bottom of the page is a sign up you can get on a mailing list and I rarely support mailing lists (laughs) but what this guy does is he does a t-shirt that's only available for 24 hours so get on the mailing list you'll get emails that show you the design and you can you know participate in these limited edition t-shirts and some of them are really 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 cool so again that's uh, sfsf.shop slash support hyphen tom and go buy some t-shirts and give us a good name and we will be coming out with a design that Michael's going to do for us that I'm really excited about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because these are some nerdy but tasteful t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These, these are, <laughs> they are so cool. <laughs> yeah, because I don't like things that are too, they're too, too busy as a t-shirt goes. Oh, I mean, yeah. sometimes maybe. Yeah. But yeah, it has to be just the right amount. It's a simple, clear design language this guy has. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Okay. That's the questions, comments, and corrections. Now let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And we just got one launch and one other thing. We have the Ariane 5 ECA. We'll be taking up uh, a pair of satellites. Uh, One is a combination of the Saudi Geosat-1 and Helisat-4. Geostationary communication satellite used jointly by Helisat and KACST. And another passenger to launch is an Indian communication satellite, GSAT-31. So this will be taking place on February 5th at 2101 
UTC with a window from 2101 to 2202. Launching at a crew. That was one that we mentioned last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that mm. got delayed. It looks like that we have a launch window because I believe last week I, I was kind of surprised that I didn't see a launch window, but this, so this is different. So this has a full one hour. So that's good. Uh, hour and a minute. <laughs> right. That one minute, you know, <laughs> could be everything. All right. And then after that, um, we have a non-launch. So this is the departure of CRS 10, Cygnus CRS 10 from the ISS. This is happening on February the 8th. Coverage begins at 10.45 a.m. Eastern Time and release is scheduled at 11.10 a.m. Eastern Time. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, and with that time to deorbit the show, we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. That's all. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See ya.